Good morning, friends. Uh, today I'm going to embark on a journey, a journey through the book of James. I guess if I gave the entire uh, series a title, I would call it uh, Faith with Boots On. Today I'm going to talk about the Coach's Handbook, and I'm going to be looking just at the first four verses of chapter one. It's going to take me back uh, to a time when a friend of mine told me that his daughter was leaving to serve in the armed forces. He asked for some special prayer because she would be, as he said, in harm's way. Well, I prayed for his daughter, and I'm happy to report that she made it back safely. But given the instability of our world, a question comes to mind. Where can you go when you aren't in harm's way? Job 5, 7 reminds us that man is born for trouble as surely as the sparks fly upward. I see no way to deny that. We are a troubled people living on a troubled planet. Why is that? That's because we live in a fallen world. Nothing works the way it's supposed to. Sin has stained every part of the physical universe, and sin has deeply infected the human bloodstream. Things break, our bodies wear out, we grow old and die, people kill each other, marriages break up, kids get hooked on drugs or alcohol or sex or all three, babies are born with defects that cannot be corrected, our leaders disappoint us, our friends turn into enemies, and one day we wake up to find out we're being sued by a former colleague or the boss decides we aren't the right fit, whatever that means. Years ago, a friend told me when hard times come, be a student not a victim. A victim says, why did this happen to me? While a student asks, what can I learn from this? These are difficult days in many parts of the world, and I believe that challenging times are here also for us Christ followers. That's why we need to know how to survive as the culture turns against us. And that's why we're beginning a study of the book of James. And though it is the earliest of all the New Testament books written somewhere around 38 to 44 AD, it reads like a letter for the 21st century. Now, here's what we need to know. James was the half-brother of Jesus, meaning that he was the biological son of Joseph and Mary. We know that he wrote very early because the book is addressed to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. That's in verse 1, meaning the very earliest Jewish believers who had been scattered because of the persecution of the church in Jerusalem. You can read that in Acts chapter 8. Those early Christians were Jewish, scattered, poor, and struggling. In many ways, this little letter is the most practical in the New Testament. It reads like a sermon, or perhaps even more like a pep talk from a coach. When we read the epistle, we get a glimpse of Christianity in its earliest form. No theory, just straight talk from Jesus' brother about what works and what doesn't work in the Christian life. Someone has counted over 50 commands in the five chapters of James. This isn't like Paul in Romans with his intricate theological arguments. This is cut to the chase. Here's the bottom line talk from a man who knew his readers needed encouragement to stand strong in hard times. James begins with an exhortation, a word of encouragement about how to respond when tough times come. And after 2,000 years, his words still ring true. So let's start with the command here in verse 1. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. James begins by reminding us that sooner or later, and probably sooner, we will all face trials of various sorts. Now the word face has the idea of falling or stumbling over a problem. 
picture someone driving down the highway in a convertible. The top is down, the music blaring, drivers having a blast, not a problem in the world, not a care or concern, but without warning, there's a sudden jolt. The car swerves to the right and comes to a halt. Now what happened? The car hit a massive pothole, and suddenly the happy journey is over. Well, life is like that for all of us. No matter who we are or where we live, trouble is just a phone call away. A doctor may say, I'm sorry, you've got cancer. Or the voice may inform you that your son or daughter has been arrested. You may be fired without warning. Or someone you trusted may start spreading lies about you. Or your husband or wife has decided that they don't want to be married anymore. The list is endless because our trials are multicolored. I mean, the phrase many kinds has this idea behind it. How then should we respond to these tough times that suddenly come? But James offers what appears to be one of the strangest pieces of advice in the Bible. He says, consider it pure joy. Or in the old King James, count it all joy. That seems so odd that one wonders if he's really serious. Count it all joy? Are you nuts? Do you have any idea what I've just been through? Well, it does sound rather idealistic, if not downright impossible. So I decided to check it out in the Greek. <laughs> but no help there. The word joy means joy. That's pretty simple. So I decided to check out some other translations. One version says, be very glad. And another one says, consider yourselves fortunate. That didn't help at all. So I turned to the Phillips translation, hoping for some light and maybe a way of escape. But this is how the Phillips translation handles verse 2. When all kinds of trials and temptations crowd into your lives, my brothers, don't resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends. Now, even as I typed the words you know, for this message, there was kind of a smile on my face. I, I think it's an exclamation point at the end that does it for me. It's not just welcome them as friends, which would be hard enough, but welcome them as friends, which to me sounds positively giddy, like I'm welcoming long-lost friends into my house. As if I pondered this matter and considered my own difficulties with this concept, the thought occurs that counting it all joy when troubles comes is not a natural response. If we want a natural response, we can talk about anger or despair or complaining or getting even or running away. It isn't natural to find joy in hardship. But that's the whole point. James isn't talking about a natural reaction. He's talking about a supernatural reaction that made possible by the Holy Spirit, who enables us to see and to respond from God's point of view. I conclude, then, that counting it all joy is a conscious choice we make when tough times come. Truthfully, it's probably a choice we have to make again and again and again. And to do it, we'll have to take the long view of life to understand that what we see is not the closing chapter of this story. If we can make the choice to view life that way, then we can make the following statements about our struggles and our trials. One, this is sent from the Lord. And two, this is necessary for my spiritual growth. That very first sentence reflects a kind of a high view of God's sovereignty. I mean, everything that happens to us is either caused by God or allowed by God. And if I truly believe that, then I can move to the second statement and begin to look for ways to grow spiritually. But here's a practical coaching hint. Don't trust your feelings. When those you love are in great pain or when you face senseless tragedy or your friends turn against you or when life tumbles in around you, your feelings won't be an accurate guide. You probably won't feel joy or grateful or full of trust. You're quite likely to be filled with a whole bag of negative emotions. 
So don't judge your circumstances by your feelings. Judge your circumstances by the Holy Spirit and by the Word of God. When you do that, a powerful conclusion emerges. And it's this, these great trials give me great hope. That means God means a great benefit to me. Seeing things God's way doesn't cancel trials or turn them into non-trials, but it does transform your evaluation of those trials. You'll view them differently because you'll believe that God intends them, or through them, to give you a great benefit that, you could, not, that could not come any other way. I think that's what James is talking about here. Now, our main problem comes because we misunderstood the word joy. Now, in contemporary parlance, the word is virtually a synonym for happiness. Joy, to many people, speaks of a pepper alley or a champagne party or a New Year's Eve bash. To us, joy means the absence of pain, of all pain. But that's not what the Bible means. Here's a working definition. Joy is deep satisfaction that comes from knowing that God is in control, even when my circumstances seem to be out of control. See, joy grows best in the deep soil of the sovereignty of God. If you know that God is in control, you can be satisfied at a very deep level while you weep over what is happening around you and to you. Now let's next look at the reason. It's found in verse 3. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Now every word of this verse is crucial. The phrase you know refers not to head knowledge, what we sometimes call book learning, but to heart knowledge, the kind gained by years of experience, some things from books, others in the school of hard knocks. The word testing refers to the process by which gold ore was purified. To separate the gold from the dross, the ore was placed in the furnace and heated until melted. The dross rose to the surface and was skinned off, skimmed off, leaving only pure gold. Now that's a picture of what God is up to in our so-called fiery trials. We all undergo some furnace time sooner or later, and some of us will spend it an extended time in the furnace of affliction. But the result is the pure gold of Christ-like character. Job spoke of this experience when he declared to the Lord in chapter 23, He knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. Friends, until your faith is put to the test, it remains theoretical. You'll never know what you believe until tough times come. Then you'll find out, for better or for worse. When your phone rings with bad news, when a child ends up in prison, when your best friend betrays you, when you lose your job, when parents suddenly die, when life comes apart at the seams, then you discover what you truly and actually believe in the depth of your soul. Until then, your faith is speculative because it is untested. You can talk about heaven all you want but you'll discover whether or not you believe in it when you stand by the casket of someone you love. God uses our trials to produce perseverance. The Greek word, sometimes translated as endurance or steadfastness or patience, in Revelation this word describes the faith of those brave saints who would not take the mark of the beast. Now, this is battle-tested faith that stands up and does not cut and run. In the early church, the martyrs gained the respect of the unbelievers because in the moment of death, they had this quality. To the very end, they died with faith intact. Of them, it was said, they died singing. That's what perseverance looks like. You don't get it in the good times. You get it in the hard times. Next is the promise. That's in verse 4. 
perseverance must finish its work <clears throat> so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. There is a process involved in our trials that leads to a product. Perseverance requires desperate dependence and dogged determination to hold on even when the world seems to disintegrate around us. Perseverance says, I'll not give up no matter what happens or how bad life may be. I'll hold on because I promised and I believe the Lord has something in store for me. That sort of gritty stubbornness produces genuine spiritual maturity. When trials have finished their work in us, we will not lack anything the Lord wants us to have. If we need faith, we'll have it. If we need hope, we'll have it. If we need love, we'll have it. If we need any of the ninefold fruit of the Spirit, you see that in Galatians 5, to 23 it will be produced in us. Nothing will be left out. Nothing will be left behind. The great danger is that we try to short-circuit the process by running away from our problems. The message translates part of verse 4 this way, Don't try to get out of anything prematurely. We often see the full flowering of this in the life of an older saint of God. Proverbs 29, 20, verse 29 puts it this way, The glory of young men is their strength. Gray hair is the splendor of the old. In Proverbs 16, 31 adds this insight, Gray hair is a crown of glory, is gained by living a godly life. Now, to be sure, there are many gray-haired fools, and there are many wise and godly young people. But Solomon means that if you have walked with the Lord, you will be filled with wisdom in your old age. How do you get that wisdom? By not running away from the trials that come your way. Many of you may know the story of Elizabeth Elliot and I remember a number of years ago at my first church, I was privileged to actually meet her and talk to her in person. I mean, she and her husband, Jim, joined a group of missionaries reaching out to the Aka Indians of Ecuador. After several promising attempts at first contact, a team of five missionaries flew into that jungle, hoping to establish friendly relations, but it was not to be. Jim and his four co-workers were speared to death by the Indians. Now, years later, Elizabeth married Addison Leach, the former president of Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, but he contracted cancer not long after their marriage and died slowly and painfully. Now, what was Elizabeth Elliot's testimony? Now, this is part of it. She said, the experience of my life are not such that I could infer from them that God is good, gracious, and merciful necessarily. To have one husband murdered and another one disintegrates body, soul, and spirit through cancer is not what you would call a proof of the love of God. In fact, there are many times when it looks like just the opposite. But my belief in the love of God is not by inference or instinct. It is by faith. To apprehend God's sovereignty working in that love, we must say it, the last and highest victory of the faith that overcomes the world. Wow. And I guess James would say amen to that as well. When trials come, and they come to all of us eventually, there is something we can't know and something we can know. We can't always know why things happen the way they do. I mean, no matter how hard we try to figure things out, there will always be some mysteries in life. The greater the tragedy, it seems, the greater the mystery. God does not explain himself to us. As we go through life, we can look back and see blanks we wish God would fill in for us. Most of the time, we'll carry those unfulfilled or those unfilled blanks with us all the way to heaven. When tough times come, we can know that God is at work in our trials for our benefit 
and for his glory. To say that is to say nothing more than the words of Romans 8.28. For the children of God, all things do indeed work together for good. Now sometimes we're going to see it. Often we will simply have to take it by faith. But it is true whether we believe it or not. The Christian way is not an easy way, and any representation to the contrary are false. There is abundant life, and there is spiritual victory, and there is joy in the Lord, and there is filling of the Holy Spirit. But those things don't come in spite of our trials. Most often they come through and with and alongside our trials. In various ways we will all struggle every day as we make our earthly pilgrimage. In a fallen world there can be no other way. And for the most part, we can't choose our trials, nor can we avoid most of them. But we can choose how to respond. Joy or bitterness. Forgiveness or anger. Trust or unbelief. Faith or fear. Love or hatred. Kindness or malice. Gentleness or stubbornness. Mercy or revenge. Peace or worry. Hope or despair. Our perspective makes all the difference. God does not intend to destroy us by the trials he allows to come our way. Those things that seem so painful now will one day be clearly seen as benefits to our spiritual growth. They are not meant to defeat us, but to be the means to a greater spiritual victory. Therefore, we should not complain when tough times come. We should rejoice, and we will rejoice if we believe what God has said. Every hard trial is another step on the stairway that leads from earth to heaven. Until next time, see the vision. Live the mission. Feel the passion.